The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Last summer, when I recorded an episode featuring excerpts with the novelist Toni Morrison talking about creativity and how she became a writer and how she wrote her novels, I mentioned that we're extremely lucky in the cases of Toni Morrison and Seamus Heaney to have, to have had two writers in the recent past who not only were great writers, but were also exceptionally famous, so much so that they were interviewed many, many times over. And so we have an immense record of what they thought and how they got their work done. And while I think it's the case, perhaps there are better novelists than Toni Morrison in the past 50 years, I think it's definitely true that there were better poets than Seamus Heaney in the last 50 or 100 years. But I think I can't think of a better ambassador for poetry to have been in the public eye for as long as he was uh, than Seamus Heaney. And I think that this episode is a, a good excuse to get back into Heaney's life because I was rummaging around uh, Amazon UK the other day and I noticed and very nearly uh, jumped for joy when I saw that the selected letters of Seamus Heaney will be published by Faber in October of this year, and I assume it will be published at the same time by uh, Farah Strauss in, here in America. And it seemed to me that that is also a good excuse for us to go back and look at Heaney's life. And um, just to get his dates down, 1939 to 2013, Apparently, there is a biography being written uh, of Heaney by Fintan O'Toole, and I haven't seen when that book will be coming out. But in the meantime, uh, the wonderful Irish uh, historian, uh, Roy Foster, R.F. Foster, has published a very small book. Uh, It's less than, or it's about 200 pages and then uh, a bit of footnotes, just called On Seamus Heaney, and it was published back in 2020. And for now, and until the larger life comes out, this seems to be a pretty good uh, entryway into Heaney's life and work. If you want something more substantive, go to the book that I've been reading from since the inception of this podcast, the series of uh, autobiographical interviews. It basically is Heaney's autobiography called Stepping Stones that he did with Dennis O'Driscoll. But if you just want the gist, if you want the short version of Heaney's life, and if you want what Roy Foster seems to think are Heaney's best poems quoted in full in a fairly brief book, uh, this is the one to get. I think it's important to see what someone who has had that kind of an attachment and involvement with Irish history and with Irish poetry found in Heaney and decided to put into a very brief book. So let's get started with this. This is uh, from Roy Foster's, R.F. Foster's book on Seamus Heaney. And the first thing he does, uh, and I think with the great gift of the book, is that he quotes from Heaney's introductions to other books, and he quotes from reviews that uh, people in America might have a hard time uh, finding out or it could be even in Britain and Ireland, you'd have a hard time finding it out if you didn't know that they existed. Uh, Reviews of Heaney's books and of essays that uh, might also be kind of hard to find. And he's dug out great quotations from them. And the first of these is a, uh, uh, just a quote from Heaney that he wrote in an introduction to a, a selection of Wordsworth's poetry that he edited. And this is what Heaney says. Uh, more than a century before William Butler Yeats imposed upon himself the task of 
hammering his thoughts into a unity, William Wordsworth was fulfilling it with deliberate intent. Indeed, it is not until Yeats that we encounter another poet in whom emotional susceptibility, intellectual force, psychological acuteness, political awareness, and artistic self-knowledge and bardic representativeness are so fully and resolutely combined. And, of course, when you put it that way, it makes sense that I am attached the way I am, and that many people are, to both Yeats and to Wordsworth. And as Roy Foster says, Haney, uh, Seamus Haney himself might be seen as the next link in this chain. Uh, the ability to be a great poet, the ability to look at your own life, to uh, impose upon himself the task of hammering his thoughts into a unity, but also to surround that with, as Heaney says, emotional susceptibility, intellectual force, psychological acuteness, political awareness, artistic self-knowledge, and bardic representativeness. Being able to say bardic representativeness without any irony, without any shame, and uh, understanding the roots of powerful poetry that can come from uh, that kind of an experience. Uh, there is, uh, here we are. And some of these quotes are very small. Um, Roy Foster notes that, uh, that detractors of Heaney, uh, especially those in Dublin, he calls them smart Alex in Dublin, uh, used to refer to Heaney's um, rural poems, the poems of his memories of uh, growing up in Northern Ireland, uh, and their author as being pre-electric. And uh, you can make of that what you will. Um, but Heaney is still uh, <laughs> lighting the way stronger than, than many other poets who were living at the same time. And on the next page, there's a quote from Heaney that says, I began as a poet when my roots were crossed with my reading. And that's an important thing these days, isn't it? There's a lot of talk, especially on the news and on social media, and you get the exaggerated version where everyone wants to, everyone and whatever their group is, whatever their political or uh, racial or religious or cultural group, they want to see themselves reflected in the world, in movies, in TV, in books, um, and all over the place. No one wants to, to feel as if they have been neglected because uh, very often uh, groups have been neglected and ignored. But uh, if you look beyond headlines and you look beyond the exaggerated versions of claims like that, um, you come to something like what Heaney is saying. I began as a poet when my roots were crossed with my reading when he began to read Irish poets, uh, Patrick Kavanaugh and Louis McNeese, but also um, other poets that we will get to mentioning here. And when he first read Ted Hughes or R.S. Thomas and suddenly realized that the subject of the farmyard, of animals, of just nature and the weather, uh, could be and really should be the subject of poetry, not of poetry of 200 years ago, but of right now, the memories that Heaney had in the 40s and the 50s, growing up on the farm. I began as a poet when my roots were crossed with my reading. It makes uh, a great difference in anyone's life when they suddenly see themselves reflected in something that is famous or that is well-known or that is beloved by many, many other people. Uh, the example that I give is very often is of T.S. Eliot's poem, The Preludes. Uh, before I became attached to the wasteland and before Four Quartets became one of my favorite poems, it was just The Preludes where he's talking about uh, people getting coffee early in the morning, um, and which I think is a memory of his life in St. Louis. But uh, whatever it was in that image of the first of those poems in the Preludes uh, struck me as something that made sense to me living in Geneva, Ohio, and that makes a difference.
let's see, a few pages later, uh, there's, uh, there's this quotation. Um, he is talking about his, I believe, the equivalent of high school, uh, St. Columns, where he is uh, living the liturgical year in a very intense way. He, was, he grew up as a Roman Catholic, of course, in the north of Ireland, and he is talking about his attachment to Gerard Manley Hopkins, and that's another instance of where his home life, he finds his home life, in this case, the, the religious, home, uh, religious life of the home, reflected in poetry. And uh, Roy Foster says this, he found it instilled, he found instilled an atmosphere which attuned him to Gerard Manley Hopkins, a Catholic priest, as, quote, his main man. This is at St. Columns at that school, this is what he found. And Heaney says, what you encounter in Hopkins' journals, the claustrophobia and scrupulosity and ordering of the mind, the cold water shaves and the single iron beds, the soutanes and the self-denial, that was the world I was living in when I first read his poems. And a few pages later, uh, he's talking about, uh, I believe, his second collection, Door into the Dark, uh, where Heaney described it as an effort to tap into the self via secret rather than public poems. It is a search to find a mode of expression that blends discipline and disarms the disciplinarians. And I think that's uh, just in those few words, you get an entire... <clears throat> I don't want to say a philosophy of, of creativity, but it's, it's definitely something that's important, uh, where you blend discipline but disarm the disciplinarians. In the poem uh, that I just recorded and posted here about Leonardo da Vinci, I make something like the same point, where I have Leonardo da Vinci say, uh, we, we do much better to learn from the paintings of Giotto, not by you know, slavishly copying what he's doing, but of understanding what he did in his own life and doing that same thing or trying to do that same thing in our own. And I think what Heaney is getting at here, blending discipline, taking poetry seriously, taking the art and the craft and the history of it and your own attempts at it seriously, but then disarming the disciplinarians, disarming the people who think they know about it, uh, disarming the academics or the reviewers or everybody else who thinks that they have the subject tied down to uh, some fad or, or other, some fad of criticism or just some fad of reviewing. And that seems to be an important thing to think about as well. Uh, blending discipline, disarming the disciplinarians. There's a way of doing that. And this is nice. Uh, near the beginning of the book, Roy Foster says that Seamus Heaney himself remarked that his first four books were, in a sense, one book, which culminated in his 1975 book, North. And indeed, I think that uh, in, in Britain, Ireland, and America, you could even buy the, the first four books. They were collected together at one point. And it is worth reading them as one thing, culminating in perhaps his best book of poetry, North, from 1975, where he finally tries to come to terms, or at least describe in poetry, the violence of the troubles and the violence of history as well. And this is what, what he also has to say about that. Um, he's in, uh, later on in the book, we're talking about uh, Heaney's poem, The Tolland Man, which is the first of the poems that he publishes about the bog body, about the bog bodies that were, uh, that have been found all across uh, Northern Europe. And the, the last four lines of that poem say, out there in Jutland, in the old man-killing parishes, I will feel lost, unhappy, and at home. He's talking about 
being out in Jutland, going to the place where uh, going to see the Talmud Man in the museum, but also uh, thinking about Northern Ireland as well, the man-killing parishes. And this is what Roy Foster has to say about that. He says, the impact of this last signature stanza haunts the reader long after the book is closed. It was prophetic in more ways than one, delivering its impact with a blunt force. And he says that in earlier drafts, the parishes had been called bloodletting in the old bloodletting parishes and throat cutting also in the th old throat cutting parishes before hitting on the unequivocal and plain spoken man killing, a characteristic Heaney resolution. And it says the poem raises two questions which lay at the center of the growing debate on Heaney's work. First, how far does the image of ancient repetitive sacrificial violence imply a defeatist and even acquiescent response to recurrent atrocity in our own day? And second, how far does the poet's stance as an observer and recorder entail or allow identification with victimhood? And this is a tough question to think about. On the one hand, you have a poet like Seamus Heaney, who would have been a poet, it seems, regardless of if the troubles ever happened. And he doesn't feel obliged to write about these things. And he only does write about them when he feels moved to, not just uh, politically or personally, but just artistically. And so what ends up coming out are these bog poems that are in North that some people did take as sort of an excuse, sort of as a way of saying, well, this kind of violence has always happened uh, in Europe and Ireland and elsewhere, and there's nothing else we can really do about it. That's always struck me as kind of a simplistic way of reading these immensely powerful poems. I think the, the, the more interesting way to look at them, if you want to, look at them outside of the poems themselves is to look at them in the way Roy Foster is imagining here in the second instance. How far does the poet's stance as an observer and a recorder entail or allow identification with victimhood? There is a very powerful sense in Heaney that he is both an artist, that he doesn't need to write about these things. He only needs to write about what he is moved to write about. But there is an immense guilt that he about the things he doesn't write about. And when he does end up writing about the murder of his cousin in, uh, in a later poem, there is then guilt uh, about that in a poem uh, from four or five years later where, his, where he writes about his cousin's shade coming to him and saying, um, that's all very nice. You just uh, sort of aestheticized my death, didn't you? You didn't want to actually weep over me at the time, but you wrote a poem about weeping over me, something like that. That seems to be the powerful core of some of what Heaney is dealing with, and I've never really understood the reaction to it uh, that, that made him seem defeatist. Uh, if anything, the, the violence in these poems just seems to, uh, almost in the sense of what Ted Hughes is able to do with violence in nature, it's not a sense of defeatism, it's just a brilliant, uh, a brilliant description of what violence has been and what it does, but I don't think it says really anything about it being inevitable or not. Um, this is a nice piece here. He's talking about um, talking about uh, Seamus Heaney's debt to William Butler Yeats, and he quotes uh, something from Yeats's book *A Vision*, um, where he's talking about the cycles of history and the, the power of myth on the cycles of history. And this is just a quote from William Butler Yeats, actually, and it's this: um, "It is as though myth and fact, which were united." until the exhaustion of the Renaissance, have now, have now fallen so far apart that man understands for the first time 
the rigidity of fact. And he calls up by that very strong recognition myth, the mask. He wants to bring myth back, which now but gropes its way out of the mind's dark, but will shortly pursue and terrify. And that's a way of thinking about the modern world, isn't it? We, we, we once had a way of yoking myth and fact together and dealing with them together. But since the Renaissance in Yeats's mind, uh, they've been separated and we've been stuck with the rigidity of fact. Just think of the last uh, 10 years of political and cultural life and how all of us want to have our own facts or how difficult it is to come to a factual understanding of just about anything that isn't blatantly obvious. And you can understand the terror of that. And at least to my mind, and to Yeats, and to Heaney as well, and to many others uh, in the past, um, myth and folklore and uh, organized religion, in a sense, are a way of dealing with uh, the rigidity of fact as well, dealing with the power of something like myth. If we go a little further on here. Oh, here's another thing. Yes, this is this is the idea that North is a defeatist thing. Uh, the his fellow poet uh, Chern Carson. He, and Roy Foster says the same thing. It's an oddly reductionist line, on the collection North, where he accuses Heaney of a defeatist and even aestheticizing approach to the history of violence. While giving some of the poems their considerable due, he dismissed punishment. And this is what Sharon Carson had to say about the poem, Punishment. It is as if he is saying that suffering like this is natural. These things have always happened. They happened then, they happen now. And that is sufficient ground for understanding and absolution. It is as if there never were, never will be, any political consequences of such acts. And again, that does just seem to be uh, an oddly reductionist line. Uh, there are consequences all over the place, and at least in this small way, whatever you think of poetry's impact on the world, uh, the, the ritual murders of the people thrown into bog bodies, or thrown into bogs more than 2,000 years ago, uh, still have their impact, still have their consequences, at the very least, in the poetry of somebody like Seamus Heaney. These people's sufferings um, are not forgotten. And about the halfway point of the book, there's a quotation that uh, from Heaney on Dante, and this brings to mind something that I've thought for quite a while, that um, I'm not comparing, uh, I mean, Dante is someone in his own stratosphere, really. But it seems that if we have had uh, an equivalent of Dante in the last hundred years or so, at least in the English-speaking world, English poetry, um, it seems to me that, that Heaney is a good one for that. Um, he is someone who lived through uh, uh, exile the way Dante did, although it was a self-imposed exile from living in the north of Ireland when he left it, I believe in his uh, early or mid-twenties or early thirties. And even more importantly, in the same manner as Dante, it's hard to read Dante without knowing about Dante's life. It's hard to read the Divine Comedy without knowing about the political situation and the names of the political factions in Florence during Dante's lifetime. And in the same way, it's very hard to read Heaney without knowing about the troubles. And that is just something that has struck me, and it's been a way uh, to help me at least to understand uh, what Heaney's impact has been on me, because I've always had a great uh, attachment to Dante as well. But this is what Heaney says about Dante. He says, I like to remember that Dante was very much a man of a particular place, that his great poem is full of intimate placings and place names, and that as he moves around the murky circles of hell, often heard rather than seen 
by his damned friends and his enemies, he is recognized by his local speech, or so recognizes them. And that just sort of goes to say uh, the same thing. Um, Heaney is recognized by his Irishness, by his Northness, no matter where he goes in the story of his life that he tells through his poetry. And when you get to his 1984 book called Station Island, which includes a long poem with that name, a sort of uh, a Catholic pilgrimage site where Heaney imagines himself going and meeting the ghosts and personages of uh, famous writers and saints, but also victims of the sectarian violence of the Troubles. One of the people that he does meet is the, the ghost of James Joyce. And what he does is sort of give an answer to everybody who wants him to write about the Troubles or about politics or be the spokesman of this or that. And Joyce is a good person to do this with. I remember reading Richard Allman's wonderful biography of Joyce, where uh, the young James Joyce has the opportunity and certainly the intellect and the intelligence to learn Gaelic and become an upstanding member of the Celtic Twilight and to uh, become a backer of Irish-only literature, literature only written in Irish, etc., etc., and he refuses to do it. Um, like Heaney after him, he seems, Joyce seems to have been compelled by the belief that he would use the, uh, the invaders and the oppressors' language uh, against them. He would use it so powerfully in a way that they would have never have thought to have used it. And I think Heaney says some, some equivalent of that in his life as well. But in the poem, Station Island, he simply has James Joyce say this, uh, that subject people stuff is a cod's game, infantile, like your peasant pilgrimage. And I think it takes a great deal of, uh, I don't want to say courage, it's not like, uh, not like anybody would have uh, knocked him over the head because of this, but just to be able to write a poem about a Catholic pilgrimage and then to have someone say that it's a cod's game. Um, that stuff about subject people is a cod's game. It's infantile, like your peasant pilgrimage. You need to have somebody like Joyce hanging out on your shoulder and telling you that it's a bunch of BS and uh, to sort of give you permission to write what it is that you want to write. And a little bit later on, when he's talking about his collection, Seeing Things, which to my mind is the only thing that comes close to his book, North, because in the book Seeing Things, there's that 48-poem sequence of, uh, uh, of autobiographical poems that I don't think he ever matched anywhere else. If the bog poems and the poems of North are his sort of outward, uh, worldly masterpieces, the, the sequence ca called Squarings in Seeing Things is his inward masterpiece. You could spend uh, a good deal of your life just reading those two things and learning a great deal about poetry and how it is written and how a poet responds to history in one sense, but also uh, deals with his own autobiography in another sense. And this is what Roy Foster writes. He says, in a later interview, Heaney accepted the presence in seeing things of a Yeatsian visionary impulse, but added, quote, my starlight came in over the half door of a house with a clay floor, not over the dome of a Byzantine palace. And in a hollowed out part of the floor, there was a cat licking up the starlit milk. And I love that because it is very easy to, uh, to mock the rural stuff that Heaney does, to simply talk about him being some dispenser of rural wisdom, which to me is uh, a bunch of bullshit. I mean, that Heaney is doing something far more than just that. And it's nice to see in Foster's book that he does realize and does focus 
on the darker aspects that run all the way through Heaney's poetry. You, uh, you have the, the early sort of manifesto poem in his first book, Digging, which is what everybody remembers. But uh, Roy Foster, just as I did in my episode on Heaney, uh, instead uh, points out uh, poems like Personal Helicon or The Forge or Bogland, which lead into The Talent Man as being the real source for what Heaney was doing from the start. If we go a few pages further here. This is interesting. There's a, there's a lot of good quotations from uh, published lectures that Heaney has done. And here he's talking about the redress of poetry. What poetry can actually do for you, what it can do for your life. And this is part of uh, something that Heaney says. Uh, and, and in one sense, he is talking about the cynicism that he found in a, uh, in a poem by, uh, by Philip Larkin. And Seamus Heaney says, when a poem rhymes, when a form generates itself, when a meter provokes consciousness into new postures, it is already on the side of life. When a rhyme surprises and extends the fixed relations between words, that in itself protests against necessity. When language does more than enough, as it does in all achieved poetry, it opts for the condition of overlife and rebels at limit. And that's worth thinking about, but I think that the essence of that is when language does more than enough, when language does more than enough, when you see what language can really do, when we remember the earliest songs, um, for many of us it's uh, synagogue or church uh, where we first encounter song or poetry or rhythmic language, how those things stick in your mind. Um, how many of our most vivid memories are memories of uh, rhythmic speech of some kind, uh, sort of accidental poetry. When we see that kind of thing, it's hard to be cynical about poetry or about what poetry can do, or even of what language can do, about, the, about what kind of life experience that language can carry or communicate. And that's really a key for me. When language does more than enough, when it's not simply uh, newscast speech, um, it does something to your ability to apprehend, your ability to comprehend, your uh, how you see the world, how you hear words. Um, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderfully simple thing that great poetry can do. And here is another instance of that. When he wins the Nobel Prize uh, in 1995, uh, he gives a lecture called Crediting Poetry. And this is when he talks. Uh, I'll just read part of it. This is part of the lecture he gives. He says, When I first encountered the name of the city of Stockholm, I little thought that I would ever visit it, never mind end up being welcomed to it as a guest to the Swedish Academy and the Nobel Foundation. At that particular time, such an outcome was not just beyond expectation, it was simply beyond conception. In the 1940s, when I was the eldest child of an ever-growing family in rural County Derry, we crowded together in the three rooms of a traditional thatched farmstead and lived a kind of den life, which was more or less emotionally and intellectually proofed against the outside world. It was an intimate, physical, creaturely existence in which the night sounds of the horse in the stable beyond one bedroom wall mingled with the sounds of adult conversation from the kitchen beyond the other. We took in everything that was going on, of course, rain in the trees, mice on the ceiling, a steam train along the railway line, one field back from the house, but we took it in as if we were in the doze of hibernation, a historical, pre-sexual, 
in suspension between the archaic and the modern, we were as susceptible and impressionable as the drinking water that stood in a bucket in our scullery. Every time a passing train made the earth shake, the surface of that water used to ripple delicately, concentrically, and in utter silence. And Roy Foster's comment to that is, the focus then swings from silence to sound. The static crackles and staccato news announcements from the radio set connected by a flimsy wire to an aerial in a tree outside. And of course, the foreign station on the dial is the one in Stockholm. And you can imagine a life like that uh, begun in a sort of, what he says, a sort of den life and uh, in, the, in the early 1940s. And by 1995, uh, you are getting the Nobel Prize for literature. It's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful thing, and we're lucky that we have Heaney's um, uh, remembrance of it. And uh, what uh, what Roy Foster also deals with is Heaney's translations from the Greek tragedies, and also his translation of Beowulf, and his translation of one of the uh, medieval Irish epics of Sweeney, and. What he says here about translation, I think, is important enough to uh, to read here because it is fairly short. Um, talking about the Oristia that he did, it says uh, his early effort, he wrote privately, had turned out contrived and dutiful, without the necessary quote madness, without the necessary madness, and a few pages later. He's talking about another play that he translated. He says, um, equally revealing were his comments on the play The Cure at Troy, which he described as doing my classics homework. I dutifully made English verse for characters to speak, but I didn't take the play by the scruff of the neck and reinvent it. What I learned through doing Sophocles was that if I had to do it again, it would have to be done freely. Obedience is all very well, but it ends up being upholstery, as Ezra Pound put it. And I enjoy that a great deal because I think it also says something about uh, what he has also said about Beowulf, which was that he, he wouldn't have chosen to do it and he wasn't in love with it. And that was maybe the thing that got him through doing it. And that's sort of a hint as well as to what might be the limitations in a poet like Seamus Heaney, his essential sort of caution and wariness and even conservatism in some way where he wasn't able to perhaps take the risks that he could have um, one can say, well, he, he obviously didn't need to. Uh, he still ended up winning a Nobel Prize, even if he didn't take all the risks. And this could all come down to the pressure of being famous so young, of having the pressure of political and social reality on his back, and people wondering when he's going to comment on it, and all of that. But it's, it's striking that he does say, especially about his... Uh, translations, and I wonder if maybe privately he said it about his other poetry, that uh, that it was dutiful without the necessary madness, that he didn't take it by the scruff and reinvent it. There's a sense that he realized that perhaps he should have been able to do that, but uh, wasn't able to. And on the next page, he has this to say, about uh, the reason why these things were published in the first place or put on, even if he saw their own limitations. And I enjoy this a great deal too. He says, uh, in one sense, I'm just a scholarship boy who got a classical education, who is refusing to let go. But in another sense, I'm someone experiencing American culture, which I've known for a long time, and knowing that it is different, and knowing that it is the future and fearful for that very reason, 
that we in Europe might let go of everything that we once had. So it's best to even do Sophocles that you didn't take him by the scruff with than to have nothing at all because of, <laughs> I apologize, bad American culture. And he says, uh, Roy Foster says, what comes through, what comes clearly through in this 2001 interview is an impatience with the expectations now laid upon him. The inner command, this is a quotation now, the quote, inner command and indeed outer expectation that the troubles and their sorrows would be part of our subject in writing Seeing Things. I had, a, I had this feeling that, genuine as the actual grief was, and constant as the distress was in our day-to-day -day life, the subject of the troubles was worn out, and my own earnest elegies were even beginning to bore me. And elsewhere he put it this way, I think that the political moment, the political urgency, is past for me. This is more the moment of mortality, that is, his own mortality. He's dealing with his own sense of old age and uh, oncoming death. And in a way, uh, Ted Hughes and Seamus Heaney, who are lifelong friends, and we can hope, and I think I did see an article about this, that the publication of Heaney's selected letters will soon give us just the letters of Seamus Heaney and Ted Hughes. I think that will be a, a bounty beyond measure for all of us. But it's interesting. Uh, Hughes felt himself uh, dogged by the tragedies in his early life to the point that uh, he believed that his 1998 book, Birthday Letters, where he did finally write about Sylvia Plath openly in poetry, where he did find himself freed uh, from the burden of that, and he wished that he had done it earlier. In a sense, Heaney seems to have lived with a similar pressure and uh, only felt freed of it by the year 2001 or so. That is also something worth thinking about. Here he is talking about old age again. Uh, Seamus Heaney says, uh, in certain great poets, uh, and this is after he has had a stroke, he says, uh, in certain great poets, W.B. Yeats, Shakespeare, Wallace Stevens, uh, Miosh, you get a sense of an ongoing opening of consciousness as they age, a deepening and clarifying and even a simplifying of receptivity to what might be awaiting on the farther shore. It's like those rare summer evenings when the sky clears rather than darkens. No poet can avoid hoping for that kind of old age. And I like that a great deal. I'm only 43, but um, I think that's beautiful, and I agree. No poet can avoid hoping for that kind of old age. Let's see. I, I enjoy this very much. Um, uh, the, it says, the year that his book, The Human Chain, was published, uh, and I believe that was 2000 or so, 2001, uh, Seamus Heaney made his last excursion with his friends Carl Miller and Andrew O'Hagan, and they would, they would make trips to where writers lived or where writers were buried and all of this, the sort of pilgrimages to famous writers' sites. Um, this time to Wales, where they visited the grave of the 17th century poet Henry Vaughan at a church on the River Usk. And Henry Vaughan is someone whose poetry I've shared here many times, so it's nice to know that Heaney also had an affection for him. And uh, Henry Vaughan's lines about the dead, that they quote, they are all gone into the world of light, and I alone sit lingering here, had long hung in Heaney's mind, and a transcription of a conversation that they had at, at uh, Henry Vaughan's grave goes this way. Uh, Carl Miller says, well, here's Henry Vaughan, a believer. It's hard to think of you, Seamus, without belief. 
I find it hard not to believe that you believe, that is, that you have religious belief. And Heaney says, I stopped practicing a long time ago, but some of it holds. If you have it as a child, it gives you a structure of consciousness. The idea there is something more. And Carl Miller says, I probably wouldn't go that far, but I have to say, I always believed I would see my granny again. She was good to me. And Heaney says, for me, my father, I'd hope to see him again. All right. And that brings, as we come to Heaney's old age, that brings to mind Heaney's uh, attachment to the Aeneid, book six, which is where Aeneas goes into the underworld and meets the ghost of his dead father. Uh, I don't know of any poet, any major poet in the last hundred years, who has written so much about his affection for his parents. Um, and I th and the last uh, published thing, uh, I believe a few years after Heaney died, um, it, uh, his translation, his full translation of the Aeneid Book Six was published. This was something, this was a story that meant a great deal to him. And it strikes me, this is also a sort of key to what Heaney is about. Um, if you think of other poets in old age and what their preoccupations are and where their emotions are lying, where they're settling, uh, he's not thinking about the troubles. He's not thinking about, uh, he's not Yeats uh, with, a, with an enhanced libido or going into mysticism. Um, He's not thinking about politics. He's not thinking about uh, a bohemian life, whatever you want to make of that, whatever that might be for you. And he's not thinking about specific religious practice per se. He's not thinking about piety. Not the troubles, not visions, not politics, not bohemianism, not piety, not uh, his reputation as a poet, not academic stuff. Uh, what is he thinking of? thinking of his father, thinking of family, thinking of his childhood. So someone who's lived a life thinking about the violence of nature and the violence of life everywhere, the darkness in all of us, really. And I think it's important that the focus he ends up on is still with family and with his father. And I wanted to close with this. And as Roy Foster points out, and this is a poem I've never read here by Heaney, but seeing it in this context um, makes a great deal of sense. Uh, it says, Roy Foster mentions that Heaney wrote twice, once in prose and once in poetry, about a chestnut tree that was planted from a conker at the time of Heaney's birth in the front hedge of the farm at Mossbawn where he lived as a child, and which had, to his child's all-seeing eye, grown up with him. And when Heaney was fifteen, the family left the house to move to a house called The Wood, and the new owners cut the chestnut tree down at the old house at Mossbawn. And, uh, so Heaney wrote about this tree, this tree that was planted when he was born and that he watched grow up and that he knew had been cut down after they left. He wrote about it once in prose in, a, in an essay in the book called The Government of the Tongue. And this is what he says. I began to think of the space where the tree had been or would have been. And in my mind's eye, I saw it as a kind of luminous emptiness, a warp and a waver of light. And once again, in a way, I find that hard to define. I began to identify with that empty space. Just as years before, I had identified with the young tree. A matter of preparing to be uprooted, to be spirited away into some transparent yet indigenous afterlife. I like that. He comes around to identifying with the space where the tree had once been, the emptiness of that space. And I will close with the poem that he wrote about this tree and about the empty space that he imagined. So again, thank you all for listening. It's good to have come back to this today. And here is Seamus Heaney in one of his uh, 
poems uh, from seeing things. And this is what it says. I thought of walking round and round a space utterly empty, utterly a source, where the decked chestnut tree had lost its place and our front hedge above the wallflowers. The white ships jumped and jumped and skited high. I heard the hatchet's differentiated accurate cut, the crack, the sigh, and collapse of what luxuriated through the shocked tips and wreckage of it all. Deep planted and long gone, my coeval chestnut from a jam jar in a hole, its heft and hush become a bright nowhere, a soul ramifying and forever silent, beyond silence listened for. And actually, that is such a nice poem that I will read it again and I will correct myself. This is actually from a sequence of sonnets called Clearances from a book, I believe, from 1988 called The Haw Lantern. So if you're looking for it, this is, I believe, the last sonnet in that sequence called Clearances. And let's read this one more time and then say goodnight. Uh, a man in middle age who has lost both of his parents, remembering the house in his childhood and the chestnut uh, tree that grew with him and then was cut down, his identification with the growing tree as a child and his identification as an older man who has lost both of his parents with that empty space with the sense of being uprooted and spirited away to uh, some transparent yet indigenous afterlife. Let's read this poem one more time. I thought of walking round and round a space utterly empty, utterly a source where the decked chestnut tree had lost its place and our front hedge above the wallflowers. The white ships jumped and jumped and skited high. I heard the hatchet's differentiated accurate cut, the crack, the sigh and collapse of what luxuriated through the shocked tips and wreckage of it all. Deep planted and long gone, my coeval chestnut from a jam jar in a hole, its heft and hush become a bright nowhere a soul ramifying and forever silent, beyond silence listened for. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.